biblical standards for appointing elders, which is actually part three of the message related to what we have been studying. Titus was told in verse five to be a appointing elders, not by election as we've seen. He was to appoint elders, and what we have learned through our first two parts of this study is that leadership is to be male leadership, and I'm not gonna reiterate all that we learned through these areas, but it is to be male leadership that is not necessarily, and in fact, it is not common today that that is even what's being followed. But by God's design, the leadership is to be male. We also saw that leadership is to be a plurality of leadership. Nowhere in God's word, though he did use men as leaders among them, but nowhere are we given that instruction where everything is a one-man show led by one person. That is man's concept, not God's at all for the leadership of the church. It is to be a plurality of leadership. Now we come to the standards, and we see that the standards are very high standards when it comes to leadership. And why is that so? This part I will remind you of. We learned from Acts chapter 20 something very significant, particularly if you want the reference, we studied it last week, was verse 28. 2028. The reason the standards are so high is because, number one, it is God's flock. It is no man's flock. There is no such thing. And I mentioned I was at a pastor's conference, and there's a tendency for pastors to talk about their church. And I understand what they mean by that, or what we mean by that. But as we mentioned last week, whether you founded a church or didn't find a found a church and just come in after, whatever the situation, it's not your church at all. It's God's flock, and, it's need, and it needs to be seen that way. Why is it God's flock? It told us in Acts that it was purchased by God. He's the one that bought it. It was his own blood. In the blood of Calvary, it was God that sent his son because he loved the church. He, he loved the world, it says, and he sent his only begotten son, whosoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that was through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he purchased it. He has bought the church. It is God who has made elders shepherds, not man. It is God that has done that. And we also saw that all elders, all people who are in that position, will give an account for the shepherding of the God's flock that had been entrusted to them. And when I hear that, and I see that myself, and I talk with a number of pastors, it is rather frightening to me for pastors who have shepherded many churches. It is not uncommon to see pastors go from church to church after a five-year stint, they move on to another church, and they will give an account from maybe five or six different churches that they have been involved in when they stand before God because those who are true believers, those true churches, we're God's church, and they will have to give an account for the entire thing. So all of those into consideration tell us why the standards are so high by God for the position. And when we talk about the basics, when we look at these standards, they are not the norm that is used today to put people in the pulpit, to put people in leadership positions. Today, the basic standards, and every week I get stuff across my desk on this, 
Uh, the standards of the world are usually business skills. They are personality, such things as social status, family lineage, management ability, whether or not the person is a people person, modern ideas, whether they have that. That, whether you believe me or you don't believe me, you just do your own research. That is basically the standard by which many, if not most people, are put into leadership positions today. That is not God's. God's standards, standards rather, are based upon character. They are based upon the moral and spiritual purity of leadership. And they are to lead with that basis regardless of the educational level, the size of the church, the region in which one is serving, or even for that matter, the country. It doesn't matter whether people are serving as elders in Germany or whether they are in Thailand. It doesn't matter whether the church is 10,000 people or whether it's 20 people. These are God's standards for the leadership in the eldership position. We need to understand some other things that are very important as we go into the list. Uh, these are actually, and I've mentioned this already in our study, these are actually standards for every believer. We don't look at it that way. We often see it because it's dealing with elders. That is true. But every believer should have these standards in their life, but certainly it should exist for those who are in a leadership position. We are not dealing with standards prior to salvation. For example, even though he was an apostle and a special apostle, just to pick one off the top, you have someone like Paul who was basically a murderer and taking people into prison or involved in that capacity. It is not dealing with situations prior to salvation. Neither are we talking about sinless perfection. That's another thing that we need to understand, that we're not talking about a situation like that. There is no one who is sinlessly perfect. There is no one who absolutely all the time would live with any of the standards. But the standards are high, and it is not to set up some type of hierarchy system. That is not the purpose here. Now, as you know, if you're aware of anything in the news, the Roman Catholic world is just going through and just went through the process of electing a new pope. That is not the idea behind these standards. There should be no, listen again, I've already preached on this in the first two parts. There should be no distinction between the clergy and the laity, none whatsoever. These standards are only there because certainly in the leadership positions, it's got to be there uh, to be examples, and I'll, I'll talk about that as I go. But everybody is gifted and part of the body of Christ. An elder is no better off than a person serving as an usher, for example, as we talked about this morning. We are all members of the body of Christ and all on an equal basis and will be part of the body of Christ. It is Christ who is the head. Then why have these standards? I'm going to give it to you right up front. Why have these high standards? Because leaders are to be models. Leaders are to be models of the moral and spiritual and social character that represents God's, uh, represents God's leadership. And they are people that should be able to be imitated, regardless of their education, regardless of their social status, 
and as I said, regardless of the church size. And I want you to see that very quickly. I've narrowed it down to four verses that I'll turn to, and then we'll come right back to Titus. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to see that biblically. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Now this is right after it's given us Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12. But he says this in verse 7. Remember those who lead you, or who led you, excuse me, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. You don't imitate everything in their life. You imitate their faith. But they are to be models. They are to be imitated. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We saw this passage in the first two parts, but I want you to go just to one verse. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Talking to the elders, it says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. You notice that again, allotted to your charge. But proving to be examples to the flock. The leadership are to be examples. Two more passages. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul set the standard. Remember, he established elders as he went around from church to church. And in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me. Why? Just as I also am of Christ. <clears throat> and Paul was able to point to himself as someone to be followed. Why? Because he was following Christ. And the last one I'll give you, and again, this is only a sample of them, is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 9, because it's close to our text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. And there we read, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Remember, we talked about that. Elders should have joy, and it should be because you have joy and make their life joyous. But notice again, we rejoice before God in our account as we keep uh, day and night praying most earnestly to see your face. And what is the point? Uh, uh, that was actually 1 Thessalonians that I read from. <laughs> I was going to say that's not what I wanted. But 2 Thessalonians, you are in the right place. Verse 9 says this. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you. Why? So that you would follow our example. And in there he's talking about praying for them. So the standards are high because they are to be models. They are to, and it's not to be by the world's standards. And just as a side trip, I would mention very quickly that all of our young people have heroes, and many adults even have heroes. Unfortunately, many times those heroes, and you think about your own life, I won't answer for you, you won't answer for me. But who are the heroes of your life? Are they sports figures? Are they science men or men of education? Are they men of finances and the way they have managed their finances? I'm going to tell you, folks, we need heroes of the faith. We need to point our children to and we need to ourselves have heroes of the faith like Paul and like Peter and Timothy whose faith we can follow. So what are the qualifications and the guidelines then for the leadership? 
Well, as I have in your notes, if you're back in Titus chapter 1 now, the key qualification is found in verse 6. In verse 6. Um, generally, in a list that's given like this, and it is true in this one as well, the first thing that's given is the key. And that is true in the list that's provided by Titus. It is also true in the list that's provided uh, to Timothy by Paul. In other words, the first item in the list is the key, and all the others basically explain or illustrate the character from which that first one comes. What is the standard then? It is right away in verse 6. If any man is above reproach, to be in the position, the first requirement, and actually the key requirement, is above reproach. That is blameless. The person is to be blameless. Now, what does that mean? It is without proper charge or accusation. It is actually a different word that was used in Timothy, but both words are very related. In other words, you cannot hold on to that accusation with accuracy. It is something that you cannot really charge that person with. It doesn't mean there won't be false charges. But nothing that could be legally charged and that person held because of the charge that you would put against them. Oh, people can make false charges. They did that of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of his trials were false charges. They did that of the Apostle Paul. They did that of the Apostle Peter. And on I could go with the list. Oh, people make accusations and charges. That doesn't mean that that's it. Throughout the ages, the martyrs, people who have died for their faith, other spiritual leaders have been charged and their ministries destroyed because of gossip and because of talk and things that were true or not true. But to be able to hold someone by an accusation legitimately should not be able to be done. Uh, nothing that would disqualify as a model, as, as a spiritual leader, that that spiritual leader would be able to uh, be emulated by others. In our legal system today, you have a system in which we get involved with indictments and arraignments and trials, terms that we always hear uh, thrown out there by the legal community or by the media. And that indictment is usually a hearing and then there's a formal written charge that's made and a plea that's made at an arrangement. And then if there's still evidence, then it goes to a trial. The idea with above reproach would be that it would never even get to a trial. That there's nothing legitimate that could be held on to. That the person's blameless and that, oh, someone might have said something, but there's really no meat to it. And if you remember the Lord Jesus Christ with the trial, they couldn't even get two or three people to line up, though all kinds of things would be thrown out. I thought rather than try to even fully explain that beyond other than saying that the person needs to be blameless and you can't legitimately hold an accusation against them that would disqualify them, I think the Bible does illustrate it with us. So keep your finger in, in uh, Titus and go with me to Acts chapter 16. This is the key, the key qualification. I would say that Timothy is the example. And here it is in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish man who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, already, already that could be a problem. 
But you go, and it says right in verse 2, he was well spoken of. Now, it's different wording, but the point is there. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. He was well spoken of. When you, when, before he chose Timothy, his reputation, if you will, is he was blameless. He was blameless in that communica- community, well spoken of. When they thought of him, he was a, an example and a man of faith, and he could be trained and taken on and led. We could have other examples such as the Apostle Paul. Many false accusations against him, but he was a man, as we will see, of integrity. So the first qualification, it's repeated twice here, is that the man must be above reproach. He must basically be blameless. And if he's not, if he could legitimately be charged and brought to court over issues and, and, and so on, then that person is not qualified to lead God's flock. It'll end up being a problem. So with that as a general rule, now what does that mean? And that's why, Pastor Dan, you're not explaining a lot what that blameless means. He goes on to amplify it. The qualification is blameless. Now to amplify that, he gives us specifics so that we might know what it looks like. And he covers areas of family considerations, personal and public considerations, as I have there in the outline, and doctrinal considerations. And we are dealing with the moral character, reputation, and integrity in every one of these areas. So what are the specifics of these high qualities that an elder should have? Well, first of all, you have the family considerations in verse 6. Let's look at them. If a man is above reproach or blameless, what does that mean? Two things. The husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Let's deal with the first one. The considerations for his family should be, first of all, with the wife. What does that mean? He is to be the husband of one wife, it says. Now, what does that mean to us, Pastor Dan? Literally, that would be translated a one-woman man, as many of you know, or a one-woman husband. That's what the man should be. Now, there is much debate over what even that means. What does it mean to be a one-woman man, to be a one-woman husband? First of all, does it mean he must be married? So if you're single, you cannot be an elder? Does it mean that he is married to only one woman at a time, meaning he can't be a polygamist? Does it mean that he is to be married to only one woman all of his lifetime. That is, there is no room for divorce. There is no room for remarriage under any circumstances. Uh, Is that what it is dealing with? Let me tell you right away that this is not dealing with the marital status per se at all. You say, but he says he's got to be a one-woman man. Absolutely. There is no article in the Greek And that's why the proper translation is not the husband of one wife, but it is a one-woman man. There is no mention of divorce or the exceptions at all. Because if you were to look at other passages of Scripture, under certain circumstances, divorce could even be allowed. There is no mention of the death of the spouse in this particular passage. There is no mention of the concept of polygamy. It is not even dealing with that. Then what is it dealing with? 
Here it is. Singleness of total commitment to the spouse. Get that again. Singleness of total commitment to the spouse. That is how the man is to be known. The man is not, you could have been married to two people, you could have been married to one person all your life and been married many years and still not be a one-woman man. Say, how is that possible? Because it's very possible that the person's been married to one woman while he's looking after every other woman. And his affection is to other women. That person should not be an elder. The person should be committed to one woman in their affairs, in their desires. He should not be a womanizer. He should not be a flirt. It's very possible, if you just take it that he's married to one woman for his life, that all the time he's married to one woman, he's flirting around with other women. Not qualified. His focus is on that one woman that God has given to him, and that's where his focus is. That's where his affections are. He's not flirting with other people. He's not desirous of other people. So it's not dealing with even how long the person's been married. It's that the person is known as being committed to the one woman that he's married to. And that's what he's to be known as. And that's the way we're to see it. That that's one woman man is what is the reputation. If he's to be blameless, then people can't turn around and say, you know, well, yeah, I look at that person. He's been married to that woman for 10 years, but do you ever watch him? He's always going after other women. He's always trying to flirt with other people. His affections are every place else. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Obviously, if it's a polygamist, that would be a problem. But it's not even dealing with the other issues. Is he committed to that one woman? So the one woman man, I believe, is simply that. That in order to be blameless, his affections, his attention, that if you talk to others, they know that that's his wife and that's who he's committed to. When he goes out of town on a business trip, they don't wonder whether he's going to be flirting around with somebody else or looking for somebody else. If that's the case and the person's known as that, they have no right leading the church of God. What about his children? Well, you look at the house, you look at his, rep, uh, his position with his wife, you also then should look at his children. That is important, the family. And what does it say? It says right here, children who believe. And as you might expect, again, here we go into a great big debate. What does it mean, children who believe? Um, I believe that it, since you get to get right to the issue, that as you deal with the character of the man, and that's what it's dealing with, it's dealing with the character of the man and his wife. I believe it's dealing also with the character of the man with his children. Let me say a couple of things. First of all, the word children here is the word technon. Now, I didn't go into every Greek word, but there's a reason for doing it here. It's not talking about a young child. And we need to understand that. Because sometimes people look at this qualification and they say that his children, well, just when they're young, you know, three to six or to eight years old, or, to 10 years old, we're dealing not at all. In fact, if you look at verse 4, the word technon was used. It says to Titus, my true child. Same word. Titus was an older man. 
and he was using it in reference to that. So when it's talking about the household, it's not just talking about a child in kindergarten. It's talking about different, and it's talking about someone not of any young age, but someone that can't even be older. In fact, it was in the particular case. What is it dealing with then? Is it dealing with those who have to be a believer? There are many that take it that way. That if a, an elder's children are not believers, they are disqualified for the ministry. I do not believe that that's what it's dealing with, and not because I want it to believe that, but first of all, it is absolutely impossible for any parent to make sure that their children are saved. Secondly, if a child made a profession of faith at age six, for example, and then you found out that they were an unbeliever by age 12, the person would have to leave the ministry if he was going to be true to the word of God, if he believed that. If he found out his child was an unbeliever, he would have to step out, out of the ministry and not try to excuse the fact that when they were six, they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think it's dealing with that at all. And it's not dealing with an excuse, as I said, if it's a young child, so by the time they're 18, you're off the hook. No. What do you think it's dealing with then, Pastor Dan? I do think it is better translated, though it would be a little unusual, but not totally, because it comes from the same root word, to understand it as faithful. His children have to be faithful. Why? In their behavior. I believe the text is what explains it. It says, having children who believe, or I would say, who are faithful, and he explains it. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That's the key. In other words, in further explaining it, they're not known for debauchery. They're not known for sensuality. They're not known as rebellion. So that you have the, the, the elders' children being the rebellious ones in the local church. That the elders' children are being the ones that are known for debauchery, are known for sensuality. If they're known for that, disqualified. Now you say, where do you draw the line in the practical sense then? If you say they can be older children. I think the practical application is this, as long as they are in your home. If you're serving as an elder and your children are still in your home at age 25 and they are known in the community as children of rebellion and debauchery, you are disqualified. If they are out of your home, there's nothing you can do. Is it 18 now, by the way, that the public deals with it? Someone turns 18 and all of a sudden they're now of legal age. If they're in your house, you are still responsible for their behavior. And if they are known for rebellion and they're staying in your home and you're going to live with that, you are disqualified as an elder. I believe very strongly that's what it's saying. Why? Because the elder is to be an example. And the elder is to be an example with his commitment to his wife and his children. And I think Timothy helps with that because he says, how can you possibly manage the house of God if you can't even manage your own household? As long as they are in your house. What if they're teens? Yes. 20s? Yes. 30s? Yes. If they're in your house. 
And I think that's why you should draw the line, because if they're of age and they're not going to put up with what you have as a parent, then they need to be put out of the house. That would be an example. That would be doing what is right. You cannot control the heart of your children. We just talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. So what are we dealing with with the specifics? I believe that in the household, he's got to be committed to his wife and his children basically have to be under that leadership, not because he's a dictator in the home, but because you see them as obedient. And I think the true result will be what does happen in the community. If the children are saying obedient at home because he's a dictator, quote unquote, and then they're known as the most rebellious in the school, there's a problem. They're not an example. You need to be dealing with that. High standards, you say who's qualified? That's why we need to see the high qualifications. You know, I talked to you about the fact, go back to the first two messages. Too many people go to churches and check out the church with all the other things and don't look at the qualifications of the leadership. And just to become an elder becomes a hierarchical position. Or because there's an elder that's left, we gotta fill that position. Or a deacon's left, we gotta fill that position. That's a wrong approach. The wrong approach is, are they qualified, first of all, biblically? And that should be looked at. It doesn't end with the family. He goes into the personal and public considerations. Now, I could spend, as you can see, and you're probably asking yourself, is Pastor Dan ever going to get through this message? We've got 40, 45 parts to this. No. I do want to try to get through, so I'm not going to spend more time. I wanted to deal with the first one because that's the home. He needs to be committed to that wife and, and totally committed to that and committed to managing that household so that the children follow and are known for that. Okay, personal and public considerations. Verses 7 and 8. I want you to notice this. He comes right back as he deals with the personal and public. For the overseer must be above reproach. Why? As God's steward. I want you to get that again. Elders are God's stewards. They are managing, literally, that's what it means. God's steward. That word steward means the manager of a house. And the elder is responsible for managing God's house. So if he can't manage his own house, how's he going to manage God's house? That's the point. But then, as he is to be a steward of God, other things should not be there, and other things should be there. And I will try to go through them and explain them and get right to the point. First of all, he starts with the negative. And he gives a number of things that should not be there in verse 7. He says, he should not be self-willed. That is arrogant. Now listen carefully. A lot of people misunderstand self-willed. Listen carefully to what that means. If you miss this, you're going to miss the whole point. Self-willed, by its definition, is this. And I'm not talking about English by the word meaning here. It is arrogant and out without regard for the welfare of others. Catch that again. Arrogant and out without regard for the welfare of others. What does that mean? If you have a pastor or elders who think only about themselves in the decisions that they make, 
and they don't care about how that affects the church, disqualified. They had better be looking at every decision I make isn't just for myself benefits. It's how is that going to affect the flock of God? Because many a man disqualified themselves right here by destroying the churches of Jesus Christ because they were concerned for their own decision and how it affected them personally. That is what self-willed means. Your elders, when it comes to decisions, have got to be looking at how will this affect God's church, whether or not I benefit from it. That's what a self-willed person is. They don't look at themselves, but they look at how the decisions will affect. That's the type of person you want in leadership that's looking at the household of God and not their personal income and not their personal decision. Quick-tempered, next. Not to be a person who is quick-tempered. I'll give it to you the simplest that was put by a writer. And I'll give it to you a quote. Does not refer to the occasional outburst as bad as that may be. What does the word mean? One who is always angry and looking for a fight. That should not be the person that's leading the flock of God. A person who is quick-tempered. They're always angry and always looking to fight. It's a kind of a bad joke, but it's kind of a sad joke as well. That used to be the way people just looked at fundamentalists. I will fight people anywhere. And that's a problem. That should not be the case. And I'm not saying that's always true of fundamentalists, but that's what it's dealing with. Someone who's always angry and ready to fight. Mean look on their face all the time, ready to go. They are also, what, another negative. There's five of them. The third one is not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. Now, what does that mean? Continually alongside of. Continually at the presence of wine. That's what it is. Or as one writer very well put it, actually a couple of writers put it that way, that the word really means that they are not to be the companion of wine. That's not to be their companion. And when it was talking about the wine, I'll talk about that uh, as I deal with it in Proverbs, was it the same as the wine today? It was a lot different, by the way. But the con why was the concern? What was the concern not to be addicted to wine, not to be at the, alongside the wine? The concern was this, impaired judgment, the possibility of drunkenness, things of that nature. It didn't mean they would be drunk because drunkenness is a sin. But when you're looking at the qualities of a man, they're not to be known as that is their companion, their wine bottle, and to be assigned it. The dangers. Pugnacious. They are not to be pugnacious. A fist fighter, literally. And if you want to compare it, you can look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it says there the man of God should be gentle and should be persuasive by giving the word of God and letting God change the life if perhaps he will give people repentance. So he's not to be a fighter. He's not to be ready to fight, and he's not to be a fist fighter. He's not to be fond, uh, excuse me, fond of sordid gain. What does that mean? 
I think that's self-explanatory again. He shouldn't be seeking after wealth, financial gain at any cost. And you'd find a number of passages that deal with that. That's not why you're in the ministry. Are there some people that are in the ministry for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they become very wealthy. I don't know of a lot of people that become wealthy over the in the ministry. In fact, it's usually the other way around. But if they're in it for the money, they're choosing the wrong profession. And usually they're out to get your money if that's the case. Now, we've already seen that you have a responsibility as a church. Uh, by the way, I should give this for clarification. Someone asked me this after the last message that I gave, and it just came back to me as I was in the pulpit, uh, where I said that the church's responsibility is to remunerate the leadership. And someone asked, then, should we pay all the elders? Yeah, you could do that. But the bottom line is here, we do recognize that, I, I don't even like the term, but it's what we call uh, full-time elders. Everybody's full-time, but you know what I'm talking about. We're someone that just committed to studying the word and such as in the capacity of Pastor Chris and myself. It's on the elder board. And you have other elders who are working out in the industry. They're still committed as an elder. And I think the idea is if they're going to commit their life to it, that you should pay them. And that's really what is true. You should pay them. And as I mentioned last time, be it elders or be it missionaries, oftentimes people try to keep them as low as possible, but uh, that shouldn't be the case. But they shouldn't be in it for the money either. What about the positive traits? Those are the negative things. You shouldn't have a person that's looking out for themselves. Uh, they should be looking out for the flock of God. You shouldn't have a person that's always angry and ready to fight. You shouldn't have a a uh, person that's alongside, if you will, that they're known as being alongside alcohol or wine. You shouldn't have the person who's a fighter. You shouldn't have the person that's looking at the ministry for money. If that's the case, they should not be in leadership. The positive things that are mentioned here is uh, the things that should be there. They should be hospitable, helpers of strangers, friends of strangers. That's what they should be. People are coming in the church all the time. The church of God. God saves people. They should be wanting to get to know them. They should be hospitable to them. They should be a helper of them, trying to minister to them spiritually, and, it, and maybe in some cases even physically. Elders should be doing that. They should be ministering. They should be lovers of what is good, people that love plain and simply good things, things that are good, that are honorable. You want to look at the list? Look at Philippians chapter 4, the things that come from above. They ought to be sensible. They ought to be sober-minded. There's the opposite. Why? That helps you to understand what he also meant when he had the negative side about not being addicted to wine. The concern is the sober-mindedness, that they are under control, not controlled by substance, but controlled by a mind that thinks soundly. They ought to be just. That is, seeking after what is right, seeking what is, at, at, what is fair, what is equi equitable, committed to justice. They had to be devout. What is that? Holy. They had to have a holy life. And then self-controlled. They had to be, have a disciplined life. Those are pretty strong requirements, and I didn't go into detail in all of them. But what is it saying? When a person's going to be an elder, he was to appoint them. If he was looking for people to be perfect, nobody would qualify. But he was to look for leadership that their family 
was in order, right relationship with his wife. Children, under subjection, not known uh, as rebellious, not known as a problem. That when it came to the personal life, they weren't just looking out for themselves. And there's many a person that goes into the ministry, as I said, that that's what they're looking out for. But looking for the flock of God. They uh, don't have these negative, but they have the positive things. Looking for justice, have a holy life. A disciplined life is what it is. It's self-control, that's what it means. Not just going every which way. Uh, a life of integrity, a heart of integrity. And then finally, just to cover it, is verse 9. It is the doctrinal considerations. And you notice he puts that at the end. Not that it's not important, it is. So in order to be a person that, as he said earlier in the verse, is above reproach, uh, their family is to be in order, their personal life is to be in order, their public life, what's the reputation that he has outside, and then doctrinally. Why? Verse 9, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. That's important. He must strongly cling to the word of God as he's been taught, not his own opinions, but as it came down through the Apostle Paul. And in elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about the apostles' traditions and teachings. The man of God needs to know what the Word of God says. He needs to hold and cling strongly to the Word of God as it has been taught, not, again, his own opinions. Why? Because he has a duty in two areas, it says in verse 9. A positive one. What is that? The positive is so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine. An elder is to be a teacher. We learn that also from Timothy. He is to urge you to follow sound doctrine. That's what an elder is to do. It is fine to go to a church and to be entertained, but that's not what your leaders should be doing for you. Your leaders should be positively exhorting you to follow sound biblical doctrine. To follow the word of God. He can't possibly do that if he doesn't know it. And then important and sometimes controversial today, also to refute those who contradict. That's the negative side. His duty is to exhort, and his duty also is to refute. Now, what does that mean, refute? To speak against, simply put. It is no good to have leadership that's going to come along and abide by every doctrine and wind and false thing that comes along. Your leaders need to know the word of God so they can teach you how to live a godly life, to live a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And your teachers and elders have to have the courage to speak out against those who would go contrary to the word of God and cause you to go astray. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect shepherd. He's called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, as we have looked at it. He is called the good shepherd in the gospel, according to John, that we studied. He lays down his life for the sheep. They are the priority, not his personal life. They are the priority because God has given that responsibility. 
He is able to manage his household. He is able to have the reputation of those outside. Doesn't mean perfect. Doesn't mean there won't be false accusations. Doesn't mean there won't be charges. It's interesting. I've shared a little bit with you, but I, while we were away at the conference, I was talking with some of the men. And I said, it never ceases to amaze me in the years that I've been in the ministry how congregations will cast out leadership and tear down leadership that is truly caring for them, that is doing labor for them, that has their life ethically, morally, pretty much in line, and congregations will throw that aside, and then someone else will come along, be involved immorally, be involved in taking money and even embezzlement, and because they got a good personality or whatever, stick them right back in the pulpit. Something's wrong. Folks, leaders will not be perfect. In fact, the leaders of Fellowship Bible Church, starting with me, will fail you because no one is perfect. That's not an excuse. I and the elders of Fellowship Bible Church are to be held up to the highest standards by you, by this community. And anyone that's in the position of leadership of an elder should be held up to these standards. Why? Because they are shepherding the flock of God. Honestly, in my personal opinion, no one in their right mind would ever want to enter into the ministry because it's nothing but problems. But the joy is just outweighing the problems. And you know why? Because God calls you into the ministry. Because God equips you to do it. And what we need to do is be looking. If the Lord tarries, the day will come in which every elder that's a part of Fellowship Bible Church right now will not be here. They will have died and passed on if the Lord tarries. And young folks and the future generations of this church need to have in position people that are qualified, that will lead, that will be examples for you to follow. If you move out of the area and go for another church, don't look at everything else. Sit down to see what the quality of the leadership is. That's what matters to God. Doesn't matter what the size is. Doesn't matter what the education is. Doesn't matter where they graduated from. Do they meet the biblical standards? I personally believe if we held the standards up that high, those who are elders would see the awesome responsibility and never take anything lightly, and they would be very, very careful of what they said that could destroy the church of God. And I believe congregations would do what we said last week because you have a responsibility to honor the elders and they wouldn't become the gossip of the kitchen table or the small group studies. But they would be held up in esteem, recognizing that they're God's people and I better be careful what I say. So perfect, no. High standards, absolutely yes. And that's what Paul was instructing Titus to establish. And that's what still, in this 21st century, 
are God's standards for elders that lead the churches. Might God help us to abide by them, to look for them, and to have people that can lead who are qualified. Let's pray. Our Father in God, a very sobering text that is before us, and I didn't even do it justice to deal with each and every one in its full depth. But Father, certainly we can see that Titus had a tremendous responsibility, and we might see why he might have even been a little afraid to do it, to find men that had that type of qualification in the local church and outside in the community and in their public and private life, to find men that would stand and encourage people to follow you from the word and then have the boldness to face the opposition not caring what would happen because of their love for you, to be examples to follow. It was a tremendous task that was put on Titus, but I thank you that Paul had the courage to encourage him to continue on and to get back to that task. And Father, we're living in a day and age in which local churches are popping up all over the place. There are so many in any given town and different sizes, that many of which are made up, not all, but many of just disgruntled believers who are dissatisfied with certain things. But I pray, Father, that in every local church that's calling itself followers of Jesus Christ, that they would hold their elders to high standards, that the elders would see the importance of abiding by these standards, so that, Father, we would have families and people and young people and old people that can look up to godly examples and want to follow because they're following Christ, that we can follow after their faith. Might, us not drop, might we not drop the standards that you've established? And might we encourage those who are trying to abide and lead in this way so that you might get the glory and that your church might function in a way that's pleasing. So when the chief shepherd returns, not only with the elders here well done, but the whole congregation as we abide by your standards. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.